Hi everyone, welcome to the Same Kit Different Day podcast. I'm Doug Mealy, your host, and I've got with me today a violence reduction specialist and lead for reducing restrictive practices, Abu Idris. Abu, how are you? I'm okay, Doug. How about yourself? Yeah, good. Excellent. Yeah, still still waiting for the lockdown to end. Obviously, as we see our clients overseas um, coming out of lockdown and getting back to things, it's 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 quite difficult. What about yourselves? How's the lockdown affected you guys? Um, it, it, it's been up and down, really, because as myself, I still go into clinical practice, um, yes. supporting staff at the coalface. Um, it, it's been very challenging, one of those up and down moments, as you know. Um, it's new, no, you know, no one has experienced anything like this. So it has been a bit up and down, but it's starting, and it, it has for a couple of weeks now, starting to settle down and people getting used to the way of working. Yeah. Um, but it certainly hasn't been, been easy. I, I can pretend that it's, it's been all easy all the way. Yeah, I mean, sometimes as professionals, we're told to be like swans, aren't we? Serene on the surface, but flapping underneath. And yes. uh, it's it's nice to hear people say, you know, it has been a bit tough. Now, I know a bit about you. I've met you at Entmore. I've seen your brilliant presentations you've done there and a couple of the other events I've come from. For our Thank listeners, you. if you could tell us a little bit about, well, first of all, what about the, the job role you're doing now and what kind of things that covers? I mean, at the moment, um, I, I am doing, I mean, as you said, I'm a violence reduction specialist and reducing restrictive practice lead, which I have been doing for quite some time now. Um, it is the same job role I am doing for uh, an NHS trust at the moment, where I take yeah. a lead and overview of, on reducing um, violence across the, the, the trust and supporting staff in implementing measures that would yeah. reduce um, uh, violence and aggression effectively. And, and, and my take on it and, and my angle on this is if you reduce the things that causes restrictive interventions or aka restraint, then you yes. stand a very high chance on actually reducing um, the interventions itself. And it can it, it can be restraint, can't it? But obviously within restrict, because some of our listeners might not be from, from our backgrounds, um, we can talk about restraint, but what other restrictive practices exist apart from the action, action of hands-on? I mean, as you know, uh, you know, Doug, you know, people use the word restrictive practice and restrictive intervention interchangeably. But yes. they, they, when you talk about restrictive practice, there's a whole variety of it out there. It ranges from, for example, I'm going to stick to my sector, which is yeah. mental health, for example. It ranges from preventing a person from going out to, to for example, bringing a person into hospital and, and making them stay in hospital to receive treatment yes. um, or allowing them to come into hospital, you know, voluntarily and stay in hospital to, to receive treatment or, in fact, um, receive treatment whilst in the community. So those are an example of restrictive uh, practices or if you like intervention, which you like to call it. Within the hospital, for example, where somebody has been admitted, there is a lot of practices or interventions that you know I can list and the list can be endless. It yeah. can range from, for example, putting someone in on enhanced observation where they're constantly watched by a person some people yes, call yeah. it suicide watch if you're talking about prison terms, for example. Yeah, um, or so bed you, watch, I've heard. Or bed, bed watch, watch yes, yes, or yeah. bed watch. 
Um, so it can range from that. It can range from actually, you know, helping a person make their own cup of tea where in fact they can make it. And I'm not justifying the interventions here. I'm just giving you an example of what yes. those interventions can, can or practices can range to, you know. Um, and I've seen that if you take away or ban one restrictive practice, it can actually cause a massive increase in others. That's, that's you know, again, I, I say to people, uh, that's always been the evidence. The evidence has always been there. Uh, if you look at the work of uh, Nijman, you know, the yes. work of Duxbury, the work of Brody, you know, the evidence has always been there telling us that if you try to stop a person from doing one thing, the chances is they're going to try and do something else and you're going to try and impose further <laughs> restriction or further try to stop them to do that. So it leads to one to another. Um, yes. So you're, you're right in saying that, you know, it, it would always spiral, spiral and, and, and cause something else. Yeah, and that's the danger for me. I mean, we've we've looked at some statistics before. Um, it was a European country I was looking at, and they had some very low levels of seclusion, very low levels of restraint. And I was looking at this thinking, this is great. They must be doing something. Um, but they were using lots of medication. So, you know, were they reducing restrictive practices? No, they were just using one restrictive practice excessively to bring down statistics and I think sometimes that that can be missed and I mean as you know we we supply soft and mechanical restraints and some people can be against those but I actually find that the services that use them um, they reduce restrictive practices whereas the services that say we will never consider them uh, they don't they don't really know what what restrictions they could lift possibly uh, or reduce by actually implementing something is that something you'd agree with Yes, I mean, yes, I, w I would agree with you in terms of, you know, if you do, you know, try and completely go against a certain type of intervention, I'll take yeah. your example here, uh, you know, a soft restraint um, yes. method, for example, mechanical restraint, which is what you, you're talking about, but this is a soft um, yes. restraint belt, ERBs. Um, if you completely go against one form of restra uh, restriction, chances are, you will see an increase in another one. And again, you know, the evidence is out there, uh, you know, going from um, what used to happen in terms of a particular method of restraint, which used to be high um, yes. in the country. And there's a massive, massive campaign that's gone on around reducing that particular method of restraint. In fact, we've seen the opposite. What we've seen is another method of restraint, for example, supine, is starting yes. to crop up. Um, but, right. you know, you know, as a matter of fact, and you are right in saying that if people, you know, say we're not going to use physical restraint, we're not going to seclude a person, for example, yeah. as an outright ban, um, what you will find is they're likely going to use a lot of medication in terms of, yes. you know, restraining that person. But because a lot of people don't actually view medication as a form of restraint, where no. what you would see is that that person gets a lot of medication into their system. And I'm not a doctor here, I'm not pretending to be, but I'm just going with, you know, common sense. When you give yeah. someone so much of something, it gets to a point where that then becomes ineffective. Yeah, they become um, immune to it in a way, yeah. Yes. Um, so, you, you know, you're right in saying that. It is very, you know, and it's anecdotal for me, I'm, I'm sure for you, you've got your evidence to support that. 
it is likely that if 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 you you go to a service where you say we've got this type of restraint belt, um, and I have had experience in 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 your product, and then um, we're probably yes. going to talk about it later. I don't know. If you go to a person where you say to them, "I've got this product for you. It might help you," and they say to you, "No, dog, go away. We don't use that because it's barbaric or whatsoever." Yeah, that happens. I have to get used to that. <laughs> <laughs> what you're likely to find is if you look deep into that person's or that organization's systems of working, you're likely yeah. to find that they a either use so much of physical intervention, which has its own, um, you know impact as we can see yes. or use a lot of medication or in fact use a lot of seclusion or long-term segregation um, which all of them carries risk uh, and I think which is one thing I, I, I've listened to your presentations and, and which is one thing I've liked about your presentation it's about saying that we're not asking you to use this forever we're asking you to consider it as part yes. of a toolbox because um, yeah. it might be um, the least restrictive option for somebody or a particular situation. Um, and yes. in some situations, it might actually be the safest, not pleasant. Yeah. We're not promoting the use of restraints if we don't have to use it. Where we have to use it, we've got to put everything into consideration as per what is best for the individual, what's actually safe for them and for the people, i.e. staff who are implementing yeah. those interventions also. So yes, um, I, I level with you on that point, yeah. Good, and, and that's important. Staff safety and patient safety are paramount. I mean, without the staff being safe, the patients can't be safe. So I, I really take that on, that on board. So yeah, if you don't mind, let's talk about, um, the, the we worked together at one of your previous services and I came in and had a chat around the belts. So if you let me know what sort of, what your thoughts were on, um, on, on implementing it and if you've got any stories about how it was used that'd be great so I mean I wasn't first hand involved or directly involved with that particular case but I was involved as a specialist in the form of advisory That's right, yeah. with how it was used and how you came in and, and trained staff and introduced that system yeah so that particular case was a very unique individual who was involved in self-injurious behavior constantly. Yes. Um, and, and the only way that staff could keep that person safe is either A, constantly put, put them on physical restraint, which you and I know carries a lot of risk to both staff and the person. And practically, yeah. it would not be safe. And tell us what that looks like, Abu. Sorry to interrupt. Tell us what that looks like. So it's restraint. Um, how many people would be involved with the restraint where somebody was continually self-harming? It can take up to a, a minimum of two person or up to five person. And you've yes. got to remember, because this is going to be a continuous thing, i.e. intermittently for about, say, for example, if this person was um, acutely unwell on a day or, or presenting really, really challenging on a day or very distressed, yeah. they may go on for four hours, five hours, yeah. intermittently. That's a long time. <laughs> you know, so what it will take is, although I've said two, three to five person, of course you would need to substitute those members of staff and get someone to relieve them. So it yeah. can't take more than 10 persons, or if you like, 15. Of course, yeah, they, they're gonna yeah. Need to, yeah. They're going to need to take over. And where would you expect a, a, a service to have that number of staff for one person 
let alone, you know, you've got to consider that they've got to look after other patients who are actually on the ward as well. So if they're going to take that amount of resources to look after one person physically holding them, which again, I repeat, can has its very, very downside in terms of risk. Yeah. Where would you then expect them to get the resources to look after the other service users? Yeah, and you, we talk about staff injuries. We also need to sort of touch on staff burnout, don't we? Because being that close to someone in such an intrusive position, as you say, for perhaps four hours, um, not only is it physically demanding, it's got to be mentally draining for you. 100%. I mean, before I became, uh, you know, got into this field, I've worked on the wards for years and, you know, over, you know, 13 to 15 years in frontline looking after patients. I have been, unfortunately, involved in physical restraint more than a number of times. Um, you know, so I can tell you firsthand, and I still do even up to a bit now and again where we have to, I can tell you firsthand that it's very, very physically draining, emotionally draining, okay? And, you know, psychologically, you, you just don't know what to do, especially where this person continues. So you talk about burnout, 100%, you will get that burnout at that person carrying out that restraint. And the longer the restraint goes on for, the more you start to lose your, uh, uh, you know, your, your, your calmness, if you like. Yeah, your composure, um, yeah. Yeah, if you, you know, I, I don't know if you've, you've, you've had sight with, um, Cam and Brody's recent um, article about teacher compassion. Um, yes. it, it talks about what you know. For example, people providing care. There's only so much of you know burnout and stress they can take on to be able to 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 provide the effective and safe care that that is required. So 100% burnout will take its toll on staff, and and yeah. and there's a likelihood for error to 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 start to happen even if they don't intend for it to happen, for example. Yeah, I agree. And the, um, the so based on the fact there was a prolonged restraint going on, um, we were asked to come in and do sort of a short presentation on it. And I think there, were, there was quite a few of the contraindications with this patient um, in the fact that they she, she already had I injuries in the first place. So we had to sort of manage around those injuries. People were having to restrain around the injuries. And then it, we, we looked at different ways to use the belts and we sort of went on from there, didn't we? Yes. So again, this is a person who was involved with, 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 with hurting themselves, for example, yeah. use that word. So, you know, you came in with your team, you, you looked at the risk assessment, um, brilliant effort as well from the staff who were looking after this yes. person for them to, to actually come forth and say, look, we have exhausted all options here. Yeah. And, you know, this is what we think would help, which is the, 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 rest, the restraint uh, belt and equipment that you and your team introduced uh, to the staff team, which they found really useful in terms of using, which helped them reduce the number of times they would have to hold this person physically. Um, yeah. and, 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 and this is not just about the staff, I must stress. This no. is about the person who's been constantly physically held and stopped from, you know, further causing injury to already existing injury that they had. So this yeah. is about that person, what is best for them as well, and what is, in fact, dignifying, in my opinion, um, yes. to do. 
So you and your team came in and introduced those those equipment um, to the team, which the feedback was absolutely brilliant in terms of what yes. the, the staff team found in terms of implementing it and how effective it was for them um, in managing that that particular person. It was really interesting to um, to hear, like you said, the feedback from the staff about how they've implemented it and sort of that it became part of the pathway to, re to recovery. And at first, exactly what you said, come in, have a look, no, go home, Doug, we don't like it, we don't want that in our place. The initial discussions, when the staff came in, there was a few people sat with arms folded and there's a few people that, they were quite sceptical about the idea of what they thought might be going back into the dark ages. You know, this isn't what we use here, this isn't the kit. Um, and I think until you've seen aspects of soft restraints and until you've actually had a go with them, and from a perspective of somebody who's involved in a prolonged restraint, saying, look, this might end this, I think that cognitive bias will exist, won't it? And I think that's, it's, it's shared by a lot of people outside of our sector who haven't got experience with soft restraints, that it's just a bit archaic and it's the, it's the wrong direction. Again, you're spot on there. I mean, we, we, we sat here in the UK talking about how barbaric soft restraint is or mechanical yep. restraint is. You and I know you go to Europe, yep. they'll tell you we in the UK are barbaric for physically holding people um, for right. as long as we are holding them. So, uh, you know, again, you, you mentioned about cognitive bias. It's all in the way that we educate people and we make people understand what restraint is. Yes. If you tell a person that if you, if a child is growing up, for example, and you constantly tell them never hold a person with your hand is barbaric, a child is going to grow up thinking that way yes. and not be open to any other thing. If a child is growing up and you tell them that the only way to safely hold a person is by putting them on a mechanical restraint, i.e., soft restraint, that child will yes. grow up thinking that's what's best. It's about opening people's horizon or you know people's thinking to a principle, which is what I've always promoted. Yeah. Teach people and educate people about the principles of doing something. So yes. when they're faced with a situation or scenario, they're able to use what is best to manage yeah. that situation safely. It may be physical restraint, it may be the use of certain medication without the use of physical restraint, or in fact, it may be none of the two but the use of belt. Or yes. it could be the use of belt for a short period whilst we stabilize that person's uh, mental health using certain types of medication as opposed to constantly holding them. So you're right, you know, if we introduce that cognitive bias into people's head, that's what people would know. And in fact, that's probably why you had some of the staff coming, arms folded, looking at, and then after you then explained what the, the kit was about and they saw it and they understood it, it changed their perception of it because now they now understood a different way and the purpose and the principles around why um, a restrained uh, equipment might be beneficial and much safer for all not just uh, the patient or the staff. Yeah, because there's, there's damaging effects to, we all talk about the danger of restraint and it's never been more current right now. Um, and we're all fearful of items of equipment like handcuffs and things like that. But the, I mean, the, the damaging effects of seclusion and the damaging effects of medication 
You must you must have seen that in the past. Again, it's, you know, we can we can we can talk about this all day in terms of the effect of medi- medication and, and um, um, seclusion. If I take medication as an example, um, you know we know that the effect of medication it's it's long lasting. For example, yeah. you could talk about medication which has a side effect of respiratory depression, for example, affecting people's respiratory system. You can talk about medication that has a side effect of actually making someone behave in a way that seems abnormal. For example, mm-hmm. people will start to become anxious. People will start to present as aggressive in itself. Yes. And then we would then try to manage that behavior. But in fact, some medications, um, as I said, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but from what I have read in terms of evidence, some medications actually make people behave aggressively you know, it, it makes people hallucinate um, or, or become deluded, for example, which are, or even, in fact, depressed as a side effect. Yeah. You know, um, on the long term, for some male people, for patients who you would speak to in the long term, they will tell you it has an effect on them in terms of how they function as a man, for example. Yes. So those effects that it has on a person's um, um, health physically those would manifest in a different way because that person then becomes a lot more angry when you ask them to take medication because they know what effect it has in their system. And in then doing so, we would then try to manage those behaviors that we consider to be aggressive and, and, and violent, whereas the fact is the effect of medication. So and it becomes simply, a vicious cycle. It becomes a vicious circle. Um, as you said, and, and on with seclusion, it's, it's the long old saying about how how much impact it has on people's psychological well-being. You know, a person who's been secluded, do they, do they come out feeling happy or excited or feel good about the staff who's put them in seclusion? The answer is no. They come out feeling anger towards those member of staff. There's a feel of being powerless in terms of um, being put then put in seclusion, um, and there's a feeling of being humiliated. If you if you ask me, if I was yeah. put in in a room and locked in a room, irrespective of what my illness is, I would feel very, you know, dehumanized, if you like. Yes. You know, yeah. very, you know, uh, ab- I'll feel abused to start with. Yes. I will feel like people have taken advantage of me. That's how I would feel. Forget the reasons why people must have done it. So seclusion itself has that. And it has, the evidence is out there, it has a far-reaching and long effect of trauma and re-traumatization also for people that we're looking after. So as you said, none of these uh, restrictive interventions or or methods of, of, of um, managing a behavior has its complete, um, it's completely perfect or good they all come with a negative impact um massively so you know in terms of medication if we can do without giving someone medication in terms of using it to manage um yeah. an acute behavior or aggression or violence then that's the angle we should take because it has a far-reaching and long um lasting negative impact um, yes but then again you know the 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 the, uh, the debate is out where you probably would get medical 
clinicians tell you the opposite um, in yes. terms of um, their belief. I think I think we've all we're all experiencing a certain element. I had Bethany's dad on the podcast the other day, um, yeah. whose daughter's been in been in treatment for for a while, and we were talking about the sort of subtle irony that some of the best some of the people that are cont- contained and uh, kept against their will they're kind of used to this and whereas we have so much freedom it's really hit some of us now just take on board what you said about being being contained in the room i've done different jobs in the past i've worked in security i've worked in close protection uh, and i've been i've been arrested and detained i'll be quite honest about it i've never been charged with anything but i've had to be arrested and detained um whilst i faced questioning um even though i knew i was not guilty i had to be put in a cell uh, and I had to wait for a solicitor to come and then I had to sit and answer questions and that whole thing it affected me you know so I mean p- p- pathetic for me to say because so many people have been through so many worse things uh, but for me I was always brought up with that connotation of if you're handcuffed if you're put in a prison cell you must be a criminal and that's just one that's like one or two incidents I can I can conjure up from, from my mind so I, I really do I really do see that. And imagine if you've not committed a crime, you're just unwell, and then you're locked up. That must that must affect you, mustn't it? Again, one hundred percent. Because I'll give you an example. Not so long ago, I was speaking to a, 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 a pair worker who you know used to be in services and now works as a, a support worker. And I've spoken to a few others in the past similar to him. One of the things that happened to him was he brought himself to hospital when he started feeling unwell about 10 years ago yes. um, because he felt you know he needed to be looked after and he needed to be helped what transpired when he came to hospital was he said in his own words the next thing I know I was put in a room and I was locked in a room and when I asked why you've locked me in a room and I want to come out because I didn't think I should be here. I wasn't being aggressive to anyone. I wasn't trying to assault anyone. I was just unwell. I brought myself to hospital. Why are you locking me in a room? The next thing I know as I've tried to get out, I was held by about five staff and pinned down to a chair for a very long time. Yes. And from there on, the police were called and I was taken to hospital for admission. And he said in his words, he, that incident and that event made him miss you know cause him a lot of distress so much that he now no longer from then on trusts the system no because he came for help and yeah. it ended up that way and he felt that why would i now get up again the next time i feel unwell and go to hospital for help uh, yeah. that's just one example you, you know, how would that person feel? I've spoken to a lot of um, experts by experience in the past, and they would describe to you the number of times that similar things while either an impatient has happened to them, for example, and how they view it. You gave a really good example, Doug, about yourself and the police. I do travel a lot back to Africa every year and, you know, to see my family and things like that. And you're driving, I'm, I'm driving. I do get stopped sometimes by the police to check on and document or to just ask yeah. you a question here and there, um, which we all know is something that happens in Africa. When I get stopped, I'm fine. Yes. When I get asked for things, I provide them. What gets to me 
It's when you get the policeman continues to detain you there to ask you for things you know they shouldn't be asking for or yes. to bring up things that you know shouldn't be or in fact on multiple occasions they would have hold of your driver's license in your car document and say to you you're not going anywhere until you come and speak to our boss i go why yes. you've looked at my document everything is intact so you're detaining detaining me unlawfully yeah i get enraged and i actually try to actually um put up a fight but i can't and your wife tells you I, off my wife does the she, same she does <laughs> she does and i but i can't um because if i do i get into more trouble because they're going to find something they're going to detain us i kid you not doc the first time i'm going to share this openly i've been shot at in nigeria by the police as I drove away from a situation like that, because I was angry, I was irate that they have got no reason to stop us. And as I was driving away, me and my two friends in the car, they shot at us. Yeah. And I had, wow. to, sp and I had to speed until we drove for another two minutes to realize that my tire had been hit and it's gone flat. And Is I that like something not, from a movie about? <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I kid you not, if my two friends wow. could hear this now, they could test, yeah. I test to it. The police people came after us and put a gun to our heads on the streets as though we were criminal and asked us to lie down on the floor. Wow. My and saving that grace, for that was just for not, for not, for, for refusing to listen further and say, look, you've asked me for my papers, I've shown them yeah. to you, you've seen them. Why are you keeping me here? I'm going, I'm driving off. Yes. And when they came to us, dog, and this is the best part, they said to me and my friend, we would have wasted you, shot at you, put guns by your side, and call you armed robbers. If we don't have a gun to put on your side, we would have called you robbers, and your lives would have been to waste. Why did you drive off? Just, I was no, enraged. You can't trust a system like that, can you? <laughs> I was enraged. That's just one example. So, you know, it's just going to describe to you that when you get, the reason I'm saying this, when you get stopped and you yes. know, or you get detained or put in right. somewhere, and you or, know you've or done nothing wrong. Yeah. you know you've done nothing wrong, you know? So yeah. that's just an example, uh, again, of, of how people must It's an amazing feel. example. <laughs> it beats my little locked up story for, for restraining protesters. <laughs> No, but I and you you take take that and put that in the UK. So you take that from another country um, that perhaps hasn't got the same human rights record as us. Yeah. Um, but then exactly the same. You present. You go to ask for help. You maybe think you're going to have some counselling. You maybe think you're going to have a cup of tea with someone. You maybe think someone's going to give you a magic pill that makes you feel better. But instead, like you say, you're locked in a room. You're told you go can't go home. You're told when to sleep, when to eat, what to watch on TV. And we're then surprised when people exhibit behaviour that challenges. Well, like you say, behaviour that challenges come it comes from the, the very system perhaps that they're part of. So talking of broken systems, um, one of the main reasons I wanted to get you on was to talk about the George Floyd case. Now, I've been getting different perspectives from different people. Um, my, you probably know my view on this, but kneeling on someone's neck is, is wrong. 
A five-year-old will tell you that. Ask a child, you know, what shouldn't you do when you're playing? Don't kneel on somebody's neck. Kneeling on somebody's neck for nearly nine minutes as they beg for their life with bystanders screaming at you to stop, um, in my eyes, that, that that's murder. You've seen the video, you've seen the clips. How's it made you feel, Abu? You know, I don't want to sound too calm about this, but... No. I, I, I take things from two perspectives also. Yeah. That video, when I watch it over and over again, tells me one thing. Police officer knew what he was doing, but I don't think yeah. he, 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 he believed that George Floyd was going to die. Okay. I don't think he believed. He thought that I'm going to do this. From looking in his eyes, he thought, I am going to do this irrespectively you guys don't tell me what to do i don't there think was he... disregard yeah there was complete yes. disregard and yes. there. tony picked up on that yesterday when i spoke to him and he said it's that that look in his eye and i think yeah you know maybe murder is quite a strong word for me to say but i think you may be right i think we're maybe and that's sort of where it's going sort of the, the third degree they were talking about um Maybe that's because he's done it before. Maybe it's because he's used that knee on the neck tactic or that heavy restraint tactic so many times before, and just he's been lucky that the people have been resilient enough to to to, to do it. And like you say, if you do something enough and you get the same results, you're gonna expect the same results last time. And I think maybe he was he was shocked as he lifted the the lifeless corpse of George Floyd up, um, because he didn't mean to do it. Maybe confirmation bias. You just yes. that's what you just described there. Yeah. Somebody probably told him somewhere that if you put your knee on someone's neck, irrespective of what the evidence is, they're not gonna die. So he's probably yeah. done it more than a few times and he's thought, well, they didn't die. So actually I'm gonna keep doing it. Yeah. Not taking into account the other things. Now, we've talked earlier, uh, Doc, about how people feel and how people are in a situation. And I've referred you back to teacher compassion, the work of Brody. Yes. Look, I'm not making excuses. We need to go back and look at why that cop did what he did and what gave him the confidence. Yeah. What gave him the confidence to do that, not only in public, but yeah. in front of his colleagues who stood yes. there and watched him. What gave him the confidence? Now, he knew he was being filmed. He still didn't take his knee off of George's neck he knew no he pressed on harder i think i think he let and his he, weight in further his hand in his you, pocket if you look at the hand in the pocket when i looked at it closely and i zoomed it i can almost say i've got no evidence here this is just me in in my experience in terms of restraint i can almost say he's using his hand to push his legs even further down onto george's yeah. neck yes yeah, just looking at the yeah. yeah, we've all supported our weight in the kneeling where we're kneeling on the floor, restraining there somebody, you and I know exactly you where you're coming from. It's a it's a comfortable position to raise your spine up and push down through the through the glutes. Yeah. So again, my question I always I always use this in examples when I teach. I always say we focus so much on the outcome. That's probably why we're not reducing the use of restrictive interventions across the country. We focus so much in the media. Focus so much on the outcome, which is good. 
especially yeah. where somebody's lost their life. But why did the person and the people, why did the policeman and the four other people of five who stood there and watched him, what gave them the confidence to do that and not question it? And what gave the policeman the confidence to do what he did? It's because they've been doing it. No one has been questioning them. No one has been challenging them. And it's been ongoing and it's still ongoing till date, uh, and dog. You look at the police restraint. I'll tell you something, uh, Doc. The attention and the focus around reducing restrictive practice and reducing prone restraint in healthcare is a lot more than it is in the police force. But if you look at the depth in restraint, it's much more in the police force than it is in healthcare. And you wonder, why is there more focus in healthcare than there is in the police. So that's where the deaths are happening more. Yes. And I will tell you again, and I've been a big advocate of this, we are focusing too much on a particular method. It is yeah. not, this is the same thing that's come out here, that George didn't die because he was restrained in prone position. No. He died because of the people or the person and what he did. Yes. Yeah. But it's you a, know? whenever I see these panorama undercover investigations and I see people saying it was this technique and it was that technique, it was the people. <laughs> it was the people, plain and simple, abusing their power. And I think you're right. Chris Rock said something on his stand up and he said, you know, people are saying it's just a few bad apples. That, that these police officers that are killing people, they're just a few bad apples. And he said, I've had a bad apple. It's maybe a bit tart, but it never choked me out. <laughs> you know? mm. And it's not, you can't, you can't be sort of a, a, a bad apple in a sector where it's good. I think it's a, a sector or a culture that allows, in fact, if you're not a bad apple, you'll, you won't flourish. If you don't fit in and you don't sort of go along with this, because why didn't those other officers call him out? I'm all for having um, the officer prosecuted. I'm all for that. But why is no one really taking uh, heat questioning with the people that were there that stood by and watched this happen? Um, aided and abetted more than anything. There was, there was another camera angle which showed a scuffle in the vehicle. So we're not just talking about a nine minute incident with the knee on the neck. We're talking about something that went on before this. And as we know, a prolonged struggle, that's what increases the risk of positional asphyxia. And my concern is we get too hung up on where the knee was on the neck. And then the next thing it's, you know, he had a lapse in concentration. If we get too hung up on the actual technique, we forget about the the poisonous culture, don't we? 100%. 100%. And again, uh, we can go into technicalities and going into what should have, shouldn't have been done. I think it's been analysed enough in the media and the police officers, I think, have done it justice. But just to bring in some light, he was already handcuffed. Yes. If you look at the video, he was already handcuffed. He was sat yes. down and he got up and he looked a bit off his feet as well. What yeah. can he possibly do to anyone in that state? Yeah. He was already handcuffed. Did he need three, two people to still hold him down and put pin him down? And put... Even if we take away the knee on the neck, yes. we talk about proportionality when we teach use of force. If we take away the knee on his neck, at what point did he need to be held on the floor? 
Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There's just... He's in handcuffs. The biggest belief for me, and some, some people have said to me it's not an equipment issue, and I'm like, yeah, you know, I always, I'm always very careful about how I talk about restraint-related deaths because I never want it to look like, oh, uh, if, you, if you used our equipment, this wouldn't have happened. I would fear to give officers like that any aspect of our equipment because I worry about how they're going to use it. You know, they, they clearly can't use handcuffs. Uh, they've used handcuffs as a method to continue the abuse and to continue the torture. Um, so for, for me, it's, it's, a, it's a, more of a, a universal thing rather than trying to get hung up on one technique. 100%. And you're right in talking about your equipment. And, and I'm like that. And I've taught a number of people in my years as an instructor. Every yeah. time I teach a person, I'm always afraid that please don't let this person one day go and restrain a person that not not not, not even go as far as the person dying, but just as far as the person getting hurt. I always have that at the back of my mind. And I always say to, you know, my delegate, I say, look, you're only taught this physical holds because we need to teach you it. So there's a, there's a way where we shouldn't, and I can't teach you it, and you could be safe. That's what I would do. I said, yes. so I say to them, look, always, always make sure that is the last resort and do everything possibly to not use it. When you use it, only use only as minimum. I always say that because I'm always at the back of my mind thinking, I've just taught people something that is likely if someone uses it inappropriately, it is a culture somewhere where it's being used inappropriately, that someone could get seriously hurt or abused with it. Yes. And that always stays at the back of my mind. Now, when we look into officers' training also, I'm sure, or I can almost bet my mind that my life that anyone who trains people wouldn't want for them to use techniques that would cause that. No, we'd like to think so. I, yeah. I can almost guarantee that putting a knee on someone's neck is not part of a taught method of restraining or detaining someone. If it is, as I say, no. it wouldn't be. If it is, it wouldn't be proportionate to use that on a person who is in handcuffs lying on the floor. No. No, exactly. It's, you, we talk about necessity and proportionality. He was in handcuffs already. Um, a, anything further than that is it, abuse. I mean, we look at the, the door supervisors and we look at the mental health sector. And I, I, I would just like to draw comparisons between the training we have and the training over there. Kind of to, to hopefully rule it out because you, you want to think it's officers' actions, but is is the training over there fit for purpose? And I think some of my other guests we've talked to have said no, I don't I don't think it is. I think they're so officers are so trained about these snap judgments and to treat everybody as a criminal. Uh, and it becomes ingrained in their sort of daily existence that we've got to protect our, our lives. Even with that said, nine minutes on someone's neck, there's just no justification for it. Yeah, again, you know, we we, we can go around that. But yes, in terms of the training that they receive, I, I couldn't comment on that because I don't know um, what sort of training For sure, they, yeah. I don't know for see. sure if, the, if, the, um, if it is in there. Yeah. What I would say, however, is, as we've constantly said in this, you know, discussed, it's sometimes not the training, it's the culture, it's the yes. people. 
it's how it's used. You've said it yourself. You wouldn't want to give your equipment to an officer like that. No. Because you would fear for how it will be used. Now, if God forbid an equipment is used, not yours or anyone else's, is used where it's been involved in someone dying, yeah. the person who's given that equipment will be, you know, worried. But yes. would we say that it is that person's training that killed the person, or would we say it's the people who are implementing that training? In this case, the implementation went wrong. Yes. Completely. Yeah, I mean, the, this, this, sorry to jump, this brings me on to the, the Restraint Reduction Network, and I think the Restraint Reduction Network, just, I think it's great that it's now shining a light saying, let's have a bit more of a focus on avoidance. Let's have a bit more of a focus on the trauma-informed care um, and and through those exercises, you know, we can all go in a gym and train physical intervention and we can mm. all learn, learn holds. And for me, when refreshers come up, a lot of organisations, care homes are guilty of this, schools are guilty of this. They're like, we need our update. We need our physical skills update. And I, I do agree that every 12 months, you should have a physical skills update. But if that jeopardises um, the amount of training time you've got to put in things like trauma-informed care, safeguarding, etc., um, then that's going to have an increase in restrictive practices, surely. Again, Doug, this, this is another ground, you know, that we could open and open quite enough stuff. But I, before I say anything further, you're, you're right. I would echo you um, in terms of the work that the Restraint Reduction Network are doing. Um, and, 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 and this training standards um, intention, yes. uh, I use the word intention. Yeah. They are of the best intention in doing what they would want to do to ensure that, um, you know, such training, any such training is safe. Yeah. But if, for example, any training, as you said, any organization who focuses more on just the physical aspect, runs the risk we've seen it happen in the past yeah runs the risk of getting people to focus more on physically holding people than the trauma-informed element of it the causation the, the behavioral support the understanding of the behavior these are all things that we should do more of yes because yeah. i know of course the risk associated when you hold someone and the you know the, the the principles around use of force and the law, you know necessity and proportionality, the likes of it, and dynamic risk assessment, all of the likes. These are things that should be focused more on, as opposed to physical intervention. Don't get me wrong. I'm not pretending here to say that we haven't done the opposite in the past, but we no. know better now. Yes, you know we know better now, and to bring to the mix also. And this is just another case in point with the George uh, situation. We shouldn't be focusing on a particular method of restraint in any standard. And I repeat, I have a lot of respect for what the Restraint Reduction Network has done and still doing. And I, I support their, 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 their principles yeah, in the of what they're yeah. trying to promote and the cause that they're trying to promote. I fully support that. And I'm signed up to the Restraint um, Reduction Network um, to, to reduce restraint because that's my, my goal and my passion. Yeah. But I say, as a country, 
we focused enough on a particular method of restraint. We need to start moving away from that. We need to start focusing more on causations, focusing more on understanding behaviors, focusing more on dynamic risk assessment. You know, there's a lot of things we can focus on more and get people to reduce the use of physical restraint. When they have to use it, they yeah. use it as don't, a minimum. Don't ban it. We don't need to call to ban it. We've had the discussion of prone versus supine. We, you know, we, and the doctors there, Tony can medically review techniques. So I think the time for arguing about techniques is, you know, let's, let's set that gone. aside and let's focus on the reduction. 100%, it's gone. The more we've been, you know, clamoring about banning it, what was the, you know, the evidence in terms of the, the statistics, uh, you know, recently, you know, well, recently two years ago, it's gone up. It went, it went higher, yes. you know, and what happened to supine? Supine became more. What happened yeah. to reporting? People stopped reporting and even up till date, people don't report wrong. That's even That's a lot right. more dangerous. Yes. The evidence is out there. Bleatman, Parks, there's a number of research out there. There's a comparative research director at the time, um, Faisal, you know, Eric, they, they've done a lot of work yep. around the effect of, of, of these methods of restraint. They stop it. Otherwise, the focus of people go more towards that as opposed to what we should be doing, which is preventing the use of it and educating people around how to prevent behaviours that cause the use of restraint in the first place. Avru, it's been brilliant to have you on. I'm very conscious of time because I know that uh, you've got to get yourself back to work. So I'm sure we'll catch up again soon, buddy. And, uh, and thanks for your personal stories. Appreciate it. All the best, buddy. Thank you, Doug.